From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy, broadcasting this week from Monroe, Louisiana. The data is very damning to think that we tracked in 2021 the highest total of anti-Semitic incidents the ADL has ever seen is absolutely shocking. Over and over, we see signs that the world is becoming an angrier and more intolerant place. While anecdotal evidence is one thing, empirical data is another. And sadly, that data backs up the dark impressions many of us share as This year's comprehensive anti-Semitism audit from the Anti-Defamation League attests. We'll get details from ADL Washington, D.C. Regional Director Meredith Weissel. The conservative movement, the Republican Party, had been using wedge issues to divide us, marriage equality, LGBTQ rights, and abortion, chief among them. And these are two issues that don't even have any sort of root in scripture. The Reverend Jennifer Butler has been a leading voice in the faith-inspired movement toward justice for decades. The founder and CEO of the influential nonprofit Faith in Public Life, she's a widely respected author, organizer, public speaker, and pastor. Now, Jen has announced that she's stepping down from the CEO position, and I'll take this opportunity to look back and forward with a respected colleague and treasured friend. To say no to President Trump would be saying no to God. Do you really believe that God divinely interjected himself into the, the, the campaign and actually chose Donald Trump to win? I absolutely believe that because I'm a Christian. Right-wing media, social and otherwise, is continuing to trumpet the conspiracy theory that Joe Biden is not legitimately our president and that the election was stolen from Donald J. This really gives a whole new level of meaning to the term sore losers. Sadly, we also see continued obsession with these alternate reality conspiracy theories from many politically focused conservative religious groups. Maybe it's easier to look objectively at these ongoing concerns from the safety of offshore hideouts. My producer in Germany certainly seems to think so. But a sober analysis of how we got here, as well as where we now are, appeared recently in the form of a book titled Religious Rhetoric in U.S. Right-Wing Politics, Donald Trump, Intergroup Threat and Nationalism, and we'll hear from the author Chiara Migliori. In Italy. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and different ways of living out convictions. While 69% of religious Americans tell pollsters they support legal non discrimination protections for LGBT persons, the public narrative continues to focus on the anti gay minority in our churches. So, to bring the rhetoric more in line with the reality, the Faith for Equality Coalition is launching a nationwide campaign, Faith in Pride 
urging houses of worship and other religious communities to overtly stand with, support, and celebrate the LGBTQI plus siblings in their midst. The campaign is aimed at June, traditionally observed as Pride Month, in secular and so far too few religious circles. Lots more information is on the Interfaith Alliance webpage at interfaithalliance.org. Meanwhile, a billionaire's impulsive purchase of one of the largest social media platforms on earth may have been cause for alarm to some, evoking eccentric Scrooge McDuck or Rich Uncle Pennybags from the board game Monopoly, but not for the hilariously named Family Research Council. Oh no, one of their incessant fundraising emails this week hailed the move as the impending return of free speech. I bet a lot of us hadn't even realized it was gone. And I also bet a lot of us would imagine any outfit pretending to represent traditional Christian family values would hesitate at such an insane expenditure when the $44 billion Elon Musk is reportedly paying for Twitter could literally wipe out global hunger and poverty, ending the real-world suffering of many millions of God's children. But, you know, troll the libs we must. Oh, and I guess it doesn't hurt that QAnon fanatics are absolutely sure this means they'll be welcome back on the platform any day now. And on a very serious note, Buddhist teachers are urgently warning against self-harm and suicide in the name of the faith after a 50-year-old Coloradan immolated himself at the U.S. Supreme Court on Earth Day, April 22nd. Friends of Wynne Bruce, who was long active in Buddhist circles, have claimed he acted to bring attention to the climate crisis. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very sincere thank you. Now, if you haven't pitched in yet information on how you can help keep this show on the air, is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now, to our first guest. The Anti-Defamation League has been doing invaluable work exposing and opposing anti-Semitism for a century. Today, this work is as important as it's ever been, with ever-growing numbers of bigotry and violence to tally, study, and assemble into the annual anti-Semitism audit, the 2021 edition has been released, and I'm grateful to be joined by ADL Regional Director for Washington, D.C., Meredith Weissel. Meredith, welcome to State of Belief Radio, and thank you for what you're doing. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. Things aren't as dark as when the League was founded in 1913, but they do seem to be getting worse by the year. What are the top-line findings from this year's audit? Thank you for having me on today. We very much appreciate this, and we have a dual mission, stopping the defamation of the Jewish people and securing justice and fair treatment for all. And part of that is You know, we have a really strong belief that all hate is interrelated. It's all equally serious and damaging. And one of the premier things that we work on is continuously fighting anti-Semitism. And part of that is to assess the pulse of what is happening in the United States. And we use a variety of tools and measures 
to look at the attitudes and the incidents that are happening. And we started conducting this audit that you mentioned back in 1979, which really kind of gives a snapshot of the problem nationwide. It helps identify trends, possible changes in the types of activity that are reported. And what was alarming is that the 2021 data is the highest year on record since we've been doing this tracking. There were 2,717 anti-Semitic incidents reported. And what's alarming is that that's more than seven incidents per day, a 34% increase from the previous year. And so it's concerning. And what we saw is virtually across every category that we monitor, there was an increase in some of the numbers. So what are some of the categories of uh, incidents that are tallied in this audit? Sure. So we look at everything from assaults to what's called harassment and vandalism. And specifically, the assaults, which, of course, are considered the most serious type of incident, it involves person to person, physical violence. A lot of times it's triggered by what I would say anti-Semitic animus. That increase was 167 percent. And it jumped a total of 88 reports of incidents in 2021, up from 33 in 2020. So that's a really huge increase. And along similar lines, incidents of harassment went up 43% and incidents of vandalism went up 14%. And that is something, you know, that obviously is deeply disturbing you know, when we're seeing some of these historic levels in 2021. And also we know that there have been different surges depending on where it's coming from. So you really can't point to a specific single ideology or belief system, but you know, a lot of times we just don't even know the motivation, but we do know that the Jewish community is experiencing more anti-Semitic incidents than we've seen in, in 40 years. And that's certainly deeply troubling based on the numbers I just gave you. What other kinds of instances are counted? So what we see is when we talk about something like harassment, so harassment can mean, you know, anything from somebody, you know, potentially yelling an anti-Semitic slur or could be social media type of post. Vandalism, you know, you're talking about when, whether there's flyering potentially, you know, in a neighborhood, whether a synagogue or another Jewish institution is targeted with, you know, with, um, you know, vandalism with graffiti or something like that on a building. We also know that there have been a lot of attacks on Jewish institutions in particular. So Jewish community centers across the country, a lot of our synagogues that went up about 61% from the previous years. We also know that a lot of incidents, uh, particularly I would say harassment and vandalism are happening in our K through 12 schools. So all of a lot of our public schools are private schools. And that can be anything from, you know, a swastika potentially carved into a desk or put on a bathroom wall, or it could be students. We, you know, we've heard of incidents of students having pennies thrown at them, or it could be some, but something like we've seen students do what's called, you know, the hail Hitler, um, you know, uh, where they raise their arm up in the middle of a classroom, particularly when people are studying the Holocaust. So there's a variety of different things. I do want to note also there was a substantial surge back in May of 2021 during the time that there was a military conflict between Israel and Hamas. We saw a staggering number of increase in incidents. It was about 148% compared to May of 2020. So we know 
that a lot of Jewish individuals were attacked physically, violently beaten in the streets in New York, in Los Angeles. And we know that that also had a huge impact last year on the numbers. So a lot of anti-Israel rhetoric turned into anti-Semitism. Meredith, would you also talk about the uh, ADL Center on Extremism uh, heat map and um, how that resource uh, allows a a closer look at uh, geographical distribution of anti-Semitic incidents? Sure. So the heat map is an absolutely fantastic interactive map that anybody can go on and take a look at. Um, It's updated regularly. The HEAT stands for hate, extremism, anti-Semitism, and terrorism. You can sort by state. There are some ways you can even sort even more granular and go down to certain cities, municipalities, and look at locations. And you can kind of see what's been happening in your community. There's a lot on there related to white supremacist propaganda because we do see a lot of flyering happening in the area. A lot of it does have anti-Semitic rhetoric. So By way of example, we've had a lot of communities that have been flyered recently last year and also already into 2022 from what's called the GDL, the Goyam Defense League. And all of that type of flyering is captured in there as well. And you can kind of see particularly the ones that have anti-Semitic in nature. So it's a really it's a really cool interactive map that you can pull as a snapshot. And it's pretty up to date, you know, monthly. So you can take a look there. And just kind of see what's happening. You can sort based on what you're, you know, specifically what data that you're looking for. And it's a very cool tool in particular for policymakers, law enforcement officials, so they can look and see what may be happening in their own community that they may not have necessarily known. Are there parts of the country that you could characterize as some more dangerous and less dangerous? Or uh, is that too broad a way of looking at it? I mean, look, there are certainly, you know, and you can see the numbers, you know, based on who had the highest, you know, number as far as, you know, where anti-Semitic incidents were. We know New York, New Jersey has been at the top of that list. I don't know that I would call it unsafe versus, you know, other areas of the country, because there are certain other areas who may have had higher, you know, incidents of assault necessarily, or may have higher incidents of harassment. So, I don't know that I could make, you know, that, you know, sort of that statement. But what I can tell you is there are definitely areas with some higher concentrations of Jewish community that have faced more incidents. But I, for example, I live in Maryland and Maryland was the 11th highest number of anti-Semitic incidents reported in the country. So, you know, it really it really does kind of vary from state to state. But there are definitely when you look at the full audit, there are certainly some states that are just facing more violence. We also know that in particular, some communities, um, the Orthodox Jewish community has been attacked more often, particularly in New York. We have seen that, you know, in certain areas where they're walking on Shabbat on a Saturday or just walking through a neighborhood have been more physically attacked than other areas. So that is definitely something that I think, you know, is concerning. And, you know, the one thing that's great is ADL works closely with law enforcement on a regular basis. So when these types of incidents are happening, we're able to do trainings with them, how to handle these types of cases and making sure that they're investigating it as a hate or a bias incident. What do Jewish parents need to be telling their kids and what do Jewish communities need to be doing in anticipation of this ugly trend continuing? 
So what I would answer to that is, and as a mom of two teenagers, I fully understand and there are things that I never thought I'd have to explain to my kids. ADL believes in what we tell to the community, and I would tell this to any parent, is we really believe there has to be a comprehensive approach to addressing anti-Semitic incidents and behavior. That includes everything from youth education and prevention programs, working with law enforcement to apprehend the perpetrators. So we also need to make sure that our laws are strong to improve ways for whether it's federal, state, or local prevention tactics when incidents happen, how to respond to them and basically say whether it's an anti-Semitic hate crime or another form of hate, you know, this is not okay in our community. So we need that to happen. We need to make sure we're raising awareness of extremist threats. That's why we do talk about training law enforcement professionals to recognize and disrupt those threats. When it comes to youth, you know, as I mentioned, education and training every day to students. We have to reach our young people at a time when they're most vulnerable to bullying and social pressures. So we have to stop a lot of this when it's just a stereotype or an anti-Semitic trope and it's just somebody using a slur. We don't want that to escalate. We need to stop it then right at the bottom. And that's why it's so important to talk to our kids about what's happening. You know, everybody, we tell them to be safe. You know, you, you look both ways when you cross the street. You know, when you're riding your bike, wear your helmet, something we didn't do when I was a kid. You didn't wear your helmet. There was no helmets. Um, but today there are things you just need to pay attention to. And look, in response to this historic rise to the community, what I would say, you know, or the past four years, what I would say to the community is and to parents is call out your elected officials, your public officials, your civic leaders. So whether it's your state, your local, your federal elected officials, your local community leaders, make sure they're using their bully pulpits to speak out against anti-Semitism, but also using them for good, promoting positive things in the community. Talk to your school districts, ask them to promote anti-bias and bullying prevention. Ask them to teach about the Holocaust. That is not happening everywhere. We know that Holocaust education is not mandatory in every state. That's something we need to look at. If your kid's on a college campus, asking your university leadership to respond firmly, forcefully when these incidents are happening. Um, that's all the kind of things that we need to tell, you know, our community as a whole and talk to your kids about what's happening. It's not, you know, you're not unsafe walking down the street, but be aware, be aware of what's happening. And when you see something happen, whether it's an anti-Semitic incident, whether it's an incident of racism or Islamophobia or anti-LGBTQ, speak out, speak up for those who maybe need it. Be an ally, be an upstander. Don't look away when, when those kinds of things are happening. I know that this can be, it's really jarring, I think, when you see these kind of statistics. And, you know, those of us who work for ADL, we see this on a regular basis. And I, we know that we're witnessing behavior that is, is just not okay. But at the end of the day, what I will say is I always try to live pe you know, leave people with a, a sense of hope. You know, when this stuff is happening, we are seeing a lot of people calling it out in the community. And we are seeing a lot of good intentioned people who sometimes just don't always know what they're saying, particularly when we talk about stereotypes and tropes. So if we can continue to educate and do a better job of that, then we can certainly come together. You know, when incidents happen, like for example, what happened in Colleyville, Texas, when, you know, the somebody took, you know, three um, people hostage in the synagogue. After that was over, 
they saw the community come together from all faiths, all walks of life to speak up, to be there, to support each other. When you see that, you know, you do see there is a light at the end of the tunnel. We're just not there yet. So we need to continue to remain vigilant, but know that there is hope out there and that people are speaking up. We just need more to be doing that. Before we go, I wish you would talk just a minute about the uh, ADL, the mandate the organization has taken on and how listeners, our listeners can follow and support your work. Sure. I certainly appreciate that. I mean, of course, I would say, you know, go to ADL.org. We have a lot of incredible resources on there. One, if you hear, see, or experience yourself some type of anti-Semitism or other form of discrimination, you can report it directly to us. We have a confidential reporting form and we are more than happy, you know, each of our regional offices or national staff to follow up with you to help you work through that challenge. Um, I would say, take a look at, we have some incredible things on there uh, called Anti-Semitism Uncovered, which is an incredible resource. And it has a lot of videos now too, talking about a lot of the ways that anti-Semitism is manifesting, whether it's on the right, on the left, the center, wherever it's coming from. So I think that's some of the things that people can also, you know, there's a lot of incredible reports on there that you can utilize. And I really wanna make sure to talk about our education team. Our education team has incredible resources for whether you're a teacher, a principal, an administrator, superintendent, to work with our K through 12 schools, because you know we want to talk to adults, but we really want to talk to our kids about what it's like and why we want the next generation to do better than we've done, and that's a lot of the things that ADL can help with. Meredith Weisel is ADL Regional Director for Washington D.C. The 2021 Anti-Semitism Audit is available online at adl.org, and we'll link to it from stateofbelief.com. Meredith, thank you so much for taking this much time to be with us at State of Belief. We are very grateful. My absolute pleasure. We appreciate you raising the awareness of these really important issues. So thank you for having me. We're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, the Reverend Jennifer Butler, outgoing CEO of Faith in Public Life. And later, an Italian scholar publishes a book about religious rhetoric in U.S. right-wing politics, Donald Trump, intergroup threat, and nationalism. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance I'm Welton Gay. It seems like the Reverend Jennifer Butler has always taken the lead for faith-inspired activism around racism, around LGBT rights, poverty, and other critical issues of our time. In fact, she's been the tireless CEO of the nonprofit she founded, Faith in Public Life, for 17 years. And now she's transitioning into a new phase of her activism and ministry with the announcement that Janae Lewis will take over as interim CEO of 
FPL on the 1st of June. Reverend Butler has always said yes when asked to be on our show. And this week is no exception, as I ask for some time to look back with her on this extraordinary time at Faith and Public Life, as well as a look ahead at what's next. And so, Jen Butler, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Well, Jen, it's so great to be here. I always love being with you. Well, thank you. You, you know, I, um, I couldn't help but think about 17 years ago, probably 18 years ago at least, when all of our colleagues were getting in those rooms and having all kinds of conversation, some talking about what we need to do, some people thinking about what we didn't need to do. All of that was going on. It was needed, but uh, thankfully, uh, you had uh, good sense and uh, showed us exactly what we needed to do. And I just couldn't not say something about that. Uh, you know, it is um, so hard to get folks, you know, on the same page. And, and we, in that time, that was 2004, 2005. Yeah. I think our faith voices had really been under attack for some time. Um, and our our words had been stolen from us. Our beautiful theology and values had been misrepresented in the public square by the Christian right. And so right. the fact that we all came together in that moment to create Faith in Public Life, which would be a strategy hub for rebuilding a progressive faith movement, is what I would think of as like a Kairos moment. I mean, it was fraught, it was difficult, um, but it was a moment in time at which we really, you know, took the bull by the horns and together began to rebuild this movement. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, look, as hard as you've been running for as long as I have known you, um, talking about what you're stepping aside, that, that must seem like uh, some relief uh, on some level. You know, it's fraught. Letting go is never easy, right? Like, I love this work. I'm passionate about it. But I'm letting go of what I've done and known for the past 17 years. I'm, I'm turning it over to an incredible transformational leader, which instills confidence. Um, and I'm excited for that. Um and I will get to do some of the things that, you know, as a CEO of a fast-growing organization, I haven't been able to do. I'm going to be able to, um, you know, speak more, write more, um, interact with progressive thought leaders and people who are trying to build this movement, both from the, quote, secular progressive side and from the faith side. And so those are things that I love, but it's unknown, it's new, and I have a gazillion ideas, so i got to figure out how to focus. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's fraught. I, I think anybody who ever says like, oh, yeah, it's great, you know, was is probably, uh, you know, compromising a little bit. Like it's, so. um, it's yeah. never easy to let go. But um, but I'm, I'm also super excited and headed into something new. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to see Faith and Public Life continue to grow under Janae's leadership. Well, I, I'm going to ask you a, a question that I have uh, I still get asked and uh, wish that it would be over. Um, but uh, what made now the right time to make the change? Well, um, we have been growing. You know, we're 25 people strong. We're in three states. We're continuing to expand. And um, I think it's time, you know, I've been here 17 years. 
it's time for a new generation of leadership. It's time for leadership that can help um, address um, the racial justice issues that are coming to the forefront, um, that uh, can continue to build coalitions in the way that we have across the ideological divides to bring people together around justice issues. And um, we're in great you know, financial shape and uh, I'm still in a place where I can continue to, to support and yet begin to let go. And I, I think that's always a good practice in building any movement is to continue to bring in fresh ideas and fresh leadership. Absolutely. When I look at how the landscape has changed from the time I started in leadership at Interfaith Alliance, it's really hard to believe. How would you compare the environment in which faith in public life was born to today? Oh, my goodness. So I always share the story that one of the first encounters I had when I came to Washington, you know, I've been living in New York City and doing global work. And so I come to Washington, I run into like a famous fellow in the elevator at a think tank. I tell him what I'm doing, you know, he's very cordial, tell him what I'm up to. And he says to me, progressive faith, isn't that an oxymoron? (laughs) And he walks out of the elevator, the elevator door is shut. And I'm like, I want to go find this man and, and make my case. Um, but it really was like that. You know, I think a number of things had happened to silence our voices. I mean, for one thing, many of our institutions were under attack from Christian right organizations that were funded by corporations to you know, tear down the social justice work. And they were silencing voices very effectively. We also, um, I think, had lost a bit of faith in our own voice as the Christian right you know, grew so quickly with, again, lots of financial support from corporate sponsors. I think we began to feel even ashamed of our own voices in a way. You know, it felt like nerve wracking to bring a faith voice to the public square when we saw faith playing such a negative role. And so I think we didn't even know quite like we we were backing away from communication strategies. We um, were afraid to speak to our particular faith traditions in pluralistic ways when we did speak to the media. And so we had sort of backed off this effort to contest that space of religion and public policy and politics. And therefore, not only did the Christian right sort of outgun us, uh, they had, you know, a lot more at their disposal, but we also backed away. And so we left a vacuum. And so really we were demoralized, I think, as um, a progressive faith sort of movement. We also um, had been balkanized. We had been divided by the use of wedge issues um, to divide us. And the the other thing that was happening was the conservative movement, the Republican Party, had been using wedge issues to divide us, using using social issues to divide us. So um, marriage equality, LGBTQ rights, and abortion, chief among them. And these are two issues, you know, that, um, you know, don't even have any sort of root, at least for us in scripture, you know, like, like, um, and yet these issues were being used to divide our communities. And so one of the tasks that Faith and Public Life set about was to help knit these communities back together, to focus on areas where we agreed, and then eventually to address the issues where we disagreed and find common ground within those. And, um, And over the years, we were able to rebuild trust and rebuild alliances. So we did that coalitional work, um, really encouraging people to find areas we could work on, you know, together, at least for starters, find that starting place. And then the second thing we did was really focus in on communication strategy. Mm-hmm. Most of our movement didn't have the resources to be able to do that. It was hard to break in because, frankly, 
the press didn't think we existed. You know, they would tell us, you're not taking over school boards, you're not taking over Congress. Therefore, you know, what's what's newsworthy about you? And so we had to learn to make news. And yeah. I think we've done that in recent years. I think we'd be interested, our listeners would be interested in um, how faith in public life got started. Who were the co-conspirators 17 years ago? Oh, yeah. Um, it, was, it was a fascinating group of people, including yourself, Welton, yeah. um, and uh, the Interfaith Alliance, um, Sojourners Network, uh, Catholic Lobby, um, African-American churches organized by People for American Way and a number of other networks, yeah. um, Muslims, um, six. So, um, and, and our founding board chair was Meg Riley of the Unitarian Universalist yeah. Association. And exactly. she was a great bridge builder and coalition maker, as well as someone who is very savvy about communications. And we're still in touch today. And then the other piece of it that was super important was uh, John Podesta, uh, who is a devout Catholic, was then the head of a growing think tank called the Center for American Progress. And he was personally very invested in this project. He um, is a student of Catholic social teaching. And uh, the first thing he said to me was, Jennifer, don't listen to the polling, meaning be prophetic. You know, don't go with what you know can be done. Go with what must be done. And, um, you know, stay stay far away from the the party from partisan yeah. sort of work, you know, try to knit people together and be prophetic and call uh, the parties to their better angels. Um, so that really helped us because, um, as you know, this progressive faith sector has been underinvested yeah. in, and we had a little startup money, and we also had some great alliances yeah. uh, within the sector to help connect us to the progressive movement. You know, I was I was really surprised um at the way in which he helped us. Uh, I, I didn't, I, I knew he was sharp. I knew he wanted us to get done what we needed to get done, uh, all of us. But he got right in with us. And just as you're saying, and I, I, I was so grateful for that. You know, he is so personally passionate about this. We had a convening, I remember, and Reverend Tim Ahrens from Columbus, Ohio, a UCC pastor, did the sermon for us. And he came running out of that room and said, Jennifer, you have to get me a copy of that. He was just so thrilled. So um, it, it was fun to see him light up because, you know, he's a serious guy, too. Yeah. Um, but this was his passion. Yeah. What made you want to focus on public activism in this space? You know, this is really personal for me. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia coming of age in the 80s, and I was wrestling with, you know, my faith. Am I a Christian? Why do I go to church? My parents make me go to church, you know, that kind of question. <laughs> and we were at the height of the nuclear arms race. I saw racism in my community. When I read about Jesus, he said these things that were so radical, like I've come to bring good news to the poor and freedom to the oppressed. And I didn't see that Jesus preached in my church. Now, had I been down the street, downtown Atlanta at Ebenezer, at Raphael Warnock's church, yeah. I would have heard that Jesus preached. If I had been at the temple, I would have heard that um, that uh, Hebrew scripture preached, uh, mm -hmm. the, the book of Exodus. But that's not what I grew up with. And so I spent my entire life, uh, early journey, like trying to find words to express that faith yeah. and, and trying to live that out and be grounded in it. And so my heart really goes out to people who you know, are trying to put those pieces together because, um, you know, especially for those who are white, I think, um, who, who's, you know, our white churches have sometimes 
you know, um, you know, shied away from from the truth of the teachings um, and sort of soft pedaled them. Um, but I, my heart goes out to people who are on that spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. And um, I just felt so appalled to see my faith hijacked in the public square. Yeah. And, um, you know, to have people say to me, what is it with Christianity in America when I was working na- uh, internationally? Yeah. Um, and so I really wanted to see our beautiful moral teachings and theology back in the spotlight where they should be. And I knew that um, the sake of the world really kind of depended on that. Mm-hmm. I think the first time there was a time I almost left uh, the work and I was at, um, I was working internationally at the United Nations with a bunch of women from all over the world. And we had been about to do um, a faith event at a, a gathering on women's rights. And uh, we were in the chapel across from the United Nations uh, having this event. Um, and we decided to give up our event so that Muslim women uh, could present on what was happening in their countries with religious extremism. And I'll never forget, they started to speak. And then in the middle of the presentation, there was a commotion at the door and one of the women faltered and was unable to resume the presentation. We looked over and we realized it was the Saudi delegation and they had come to intimidate her. Mm. The whole room began to applaud. And as they stood up to applaud her, they ended up blocking the door and blocking them from sight and from entry. Mm. She was able to resume her talk. We stayed on our feet. She resumed her talk. And for me, that was the moment when I decided to be ordained. Mm. I decided that I had to reclaim my faith for the sake of my own spiritual journey. I realized that if women uh, from different parts of the world could do what these Muslim women were doing, that I had to have the courage to do so as well. Hmm. What a story. Jen, I know this uh, is going to be uh, hard to answer, but what are two or three campaigns that uh, you feel especially proud of out of the countless challenges that uh, you've taken on in uh, all of these years? Well, the first is um, helping to pass the Affordable Care Act. And I think Jack Jenkins documents this well on his book on the religious left. We did a six-state strategy that brought faith groups together to um, ensure that faith leaders were speaking out and supported the bill in states that we knew um, would be difficult to get support for the bill in. And um, I'd say ultimately we were instrumental in ensuring that that bill passed by, you know, deploying voices from across, again, an ideological perspective um, uh, on the the issue, showing unity around that and to help build a moral drumbeat, especially when the Tea Party was trying to undermine that bill. We invited Obama into a national call with faith leaders, and he really got on the moral bully pulpit about Mm -hmm. that bill. So I was super proud of that. And that led us to um, really strengthen our state organizing. We began to build out leadership networks in states around the country because we needed more depth in order to like really drive national narratives and national policy. And so the second thing I'll never forget is going to my home state of Georgia and realizing how many amazing faith leaders were there. (laughs) Um, And we were able to, um, they were trying to pass a discriminatory religious freedom bill and actually Baptists, you'll be, you know, as you, you know, yeah. were key to this battle. Um, the, the Christian right was really, you know, backing this bill that looked good. It sounded beautiful, religious freedom. We were able to alert people of the discriminatory pieces, the kind of trickery that was in that bill. And so we had uh, white Southern Baptists speak 
speaking out vociferously um, to prevent that bill from passing. We had black clergy and rabbis. We were all working together. We didn't even all fully agree. You know, some of us were still evolving on LGBTQ equality, but we were willing to make sure that this bill didn't discriminate against uh, people who were created in God's image. And so that strategy was pretty exciting. And my favorite headline of all time, um, the, the, the faith community really led the um, media push in 2014 to oppose that bill as uh, corporations were kind of stepping back and uh, taking a quieter role. And we you know, got 400 news hits during that legislative cycle. And my favorite headline was dueling Baptists at the Capitol. Uh, faith, <laughs> faith leaders oppose religious freedom bill activist support, you know, so the Christian right wasn't even called like a faith group, you know, we really dominated that um, and managed to shape the public debate around it. The third thing that I really will tell my grandchildren about if I have any ever, um, and hopefully I will, um, but is um, the way we drew a bright moral line in the sand as soon as uh, an authoritarian uh racist leader was elected to the presidency. And uh, we got out there right away and called out his cabinet of bigotry, worked uh, to support voting rights and um, to ensure immigrant rights were protected and uh, to prevent the, try to block the refugee ban. I feel like the faith community really galvanized in that moment and drew that bright moral line that we needed to. Hmm. I have to ask you also, is there a challenge um, that you feel you could not have seen coming that uh, is at the top priority now with uh, faith in public life? You know, the biggest challenge right now is, um, you know, our, our democracy itself. And so we're mounting a campaign this year to ensure that election integrity is shored up, um, that everybody has access to the polls, that any violence, uh, potential violence is addressed and tamped down. And we think religious leaders, we're, we're the nonpartisan act- actors that can get out there and legitimate the election process. We're the people who can calm nerves and calm fears. Um, and so I guess what I never saw, and perhaps I was naive, but I think a lot of us were, was that our democracy itself was continually Um, being undermined to the extent that it could be fully compromised. And of course, the reason for that is we've never overcome our original sin of racism. Um, Our structures, you know, in the Christian right itself is, you know, was invented, you know, out of um, opposition to school desegregation. Mm -hmm. So we need to remember that. Um, And now it's full-blown Christian nationalism. So I think, you know, for us as a faith community, really dismantling the heresy of Christian nationalism and ensuring that faith leaders um, get out here in this moment to protect democracy, which really is the system that encapsulates all of our beliefs around the dignity of every single person. If we don't have voice and vote and the ability to choose our leaders and the policies that shape our communities so that they're based on our values, then we don't, um, we're not able to, to live out our faith in the way and to create the kind of society that God creates us to, or calls us to create. Yeah. Give us a um, short uh, word on uh, Janae Lewis, if you would. Janae has been on our board for a number of years. She is a devout African-American Catholic, very active in her parish in Washington, D.C. She has a background in philanthropy, politics, organizing, and conflict resolution, which Lord knows we need these days in this country. (laughs) Um, And so 
she um, and she is just um, truly, you know, I've been working with her over these past months and 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 shaping things, and I've already learned, you know, so much for from her just working with her more intensively. So um, she's going to be a dynamic leader, and she's the leader we need for this moment. Hmm. What's next for you? What have you been wanting to do that the schedule you've been keeping made impossible for you to do? Well, I wrote a book in 2020, which in retrospect was a bit ambitious, but it came together well. It was, um, it's called Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. And with COVID, I've, I've been out on the road a little bit. I've mainly been Zooming, but I'm really looking forward to doing a book tour to help equip people with the tools to um, support democracy, oppose autocracy, to realize all of our scripture really is a handbook of spiritual disciplines and connections to our spiritual ancestors who did the same, who resisted autocrats against all odds and prevailed. So I'm looking forward to doing that. I'm looking forward as well to helping progressive allies understand the value that faith communities bring to the table. I'll be doing more networking and support um, to our allies around communication strategy to faith communities um, and building those kinds of partnerships. Um, I'll be able to be a a little more of a thought leader. I'm looking forward to writing more op-eds and and publishing as well. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, look, you know I can't get off with you without asking one other question. Would you let our listeners know how to follow and support the ongoing work of Faith in Public Life? Yes, be sure to sign up on our website, faithinpubliclife.org, to get alerts on various issues, uh, particularly around democracy. We're also tackling reproductive health and justice in the coming years. Um, and, and other issues as well in states. Um, and then follow us on Twitter. Um, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, Facebook, so you can easily find us by searching. And uh, you can follow me at Rev Jen Butler. That's my handle, both on Instagram and Twitter. The Reverend Jennifer Butler is founder and CEO of Faith in Public Life and the author of the book, and it's a good one, Who Stole My Bible?, Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. On June 1st, Janae Lewis steps into the role of interim CEO as Jen assumes the title of Founder-in-Residence and Vice Chair of Faith in Public Life's Board. Jen, I know there will be a lot more to talk about with you going forward. But I want to thank you for all that you have done to inspire and motivate and defend and uplift over all of these years. It's always great to have you with us on State of Belief Radio. Thank you, Elton. I have so enjoyed this, and I'm so appreciative of State of Belief. The book is a substantial tome, a thesis with the sober title, Religious Rhetoric in U.S. Right-Wing Politics, Donald Trump, Intergroup Threat, and Nationalism. With all the analyses of our recent era from U.S. political journalists and partisan analysts, 
it's uh, good to get the observations and insights of a scholar who may be both more dispassionate and comprehensive. And so I am happy to welcome author Chiara Migliori. Thank you so much for uh, being with us. Thanks for having me. What got you interested in focusing on uh, this troubling moment in American history and the collision of religion and politics? Well, um, I can answer with a two-part answer, actually. One goes back to my first year of university here in Italy, uh, where I attended my first class in Anglo-American literature. But uh, instead of studying literature, uh, the professor took us through the journey that brought Christianity, religion, and uh, specifically Christianity to the United States. And there I discovered something I had never realized, which is the importance and the huge role of religion um, in the country. And from then on, I just devoted my studies to uh, finding out more about it. Um, I also wrote my master thesis on Christian fundamentalism in the history of the United States. And I've always been fascinated by this topic, by the just how vital religion is in the United States. And I think the second thing that led me to study this uh, specific moment in time, so Donald Trump, uh, the religious right, and Christian voters uh, of Donald Trump, is the fact that um, I really want to try to understand people who think differently than me. I do not belong to the ideological currents of the people who supported Donald Trump. Like my political beliefs are somehow much different uh, from theirs. Uh, but I've always been really interested in trying to understand um, what brings people to support figures such as Donald Trump and specifically to try to understand how is it possible that people at some point uh, or in the course of their life begin to feel threatened by diversification, by religious, uh, ethnic and cultural minorities, by the LGBTQI plus? And how come that people feel so threatened that then they are appealed by figures such as Donald Trump, who promised them, who promises them that uh, to, to, to return to this mythical past where their identity, their culture, and their religion was cherished and was valued. So uh, that's that's my main aim, try to understand uh, where people come from, ideologically and politically speaking. Mm. The astounding damage of Trumpism and the collusion of the political religious right is something most Americans might acknowledge, but a scholarly look seems impossible when there's nonstop noise on social media and political broadcasts. So we look overseas for a, a more sober and dispassionate analysis. Do you think Europeans are deeper thinkers, or it's just that history goes back a lot further in Europe while uh, Americans still think of everything as being novel and original? 
Um, I do not think we are deeper thinkers, <laughs> uh, but I think the reason is precisely what you, what you just said is because here on the other side of the pond, um, we can have a much more detached look on what's going on in the United States. Um, this, on the other hand, also means, of course, that we lack the cultural identity, historical traits and capacity to really deeply um, understand the North American culture and, um, and how mm, politics in the United States uh, works. And um, it is true that we have a longer history, of course, but what is also undeniable is that we are imbued with um, Western and specifically US culture. And we actually often look with, um, we look at the US with some sort of anticipation of things that might arrive here as well. Sometimes these things are uh, positive, sometimes they aren't. Um, for example, Steve Bannon and his attempts at establishing a religious political organization here in Italy is an example of an undesired US products. Uh, but it's definitely true that we can um, we, we, we can look at uh, the United States uh, history, but in particular, current political situation with a more detached look. Uh, that's why probably we can allow ourselves to, uh, yeah, to exit all this noise bubble, which is very strong here as well, but all this, all this noise, all this um, noise from political commentators, uh, etc. And we can allow ourselves to exit this bubble and just um, look at the United States uh, with a more sober uh, look. Gura, mm. would you um, give us some examples of the religious rhetoric that you focus on in this book? Yes, I, I focused on these three actors, Donald Trump, religious rights, prominent organizations, uh, by which I mean pro-family, pro-life organizations, such as the Family Research Council, um, Heritage Foundation, um, Alliance Defending Freedom, and others. And the third actor are his uh, ordinary voters, so people who are not involved in uh, the political or lobbying activity of the religious right. And I focused, um, with regard to Donald Trump, I focused very much on his slogans mm -hmm. uh, because what I realized was that he wasn't really using religious talk to depict, uh, to portray himself as a deeply religious or spiritual person. He was using religious Christian symbols as um, to craft these very powerful slogans that he would then shout during his rallies, such as nothing beats the Bible or the promise, uh, we're going to say Merry Christmas again. Um, and then with regard to the religious right, I focused, well, I did some interviews with some members of this, uh, of these, this coalition, we can call it. Uh, but I focused in particular on um, the Washington updates, which is, which are these um, very short articles published by the Family Research Councils, which read uh, major events of the past week or the past days uh, from a religious conservative perspective. Uh, 
and I tried to uh, find some similarities, some, some points in common uh, between the discourse of um, the religious right and of Donald Trump's uh, Donald Trump's Christian voters. And what, uh, what, what, what came up is that they both uh, use very much this rights talk. Uh, of course, I'm not the one who coined this uh, expression, but they make um, great use of this rights talk. So they frame the, their battles, their claims uh, in, uh, as, as a, a fight between their uh, a fight for the protection of their rights to religious freedom and freedom of speech against the claims of what they consider undeserving individuals in the United States. So religion itself is not really a huge part of uh, of this discourse. So is that what you saw as different from earlier uh, election cycles or if say what you did see as uh, as most different? I would say that well first of all um, of course Donald Trump is a novelty but he is a novel phenomenon steeped in a western u.s tradition mm -hmm. he ran for the republican party and so he knew he had to appeal to conservative christian voters or self-identified evangelicals self-identified christians and he also knew he had to do some gestures of differentiation towards uh religious organizations and towards his christian electorate and so uh that's for that's uh, that's what concerns his, uh, his, the traditional path that he followed. He, um, well, he adopted the same slogan as Ronald Reagan. Um, he nominated pro-life and conservative justices. He created this evangelical advisory board. But of course, there are some novel elements in Donald Trump figure. Um, one of these elements is the fact that he never really tried to uh, come across as a deeply spiritual person, a deeply religious person, besides when he was, for example, uh, in the same room with uh, evangelical pastors, religious leaders who would lay hands on him. Uh, those were the only occasions where we could see really Donald Trump in a religious environment. Um, but as I said, the, the real... The, one of the main differences between him and previous Republican candidates was that he would only use religious talk and religious symbols as part of his uh, rants, yeah. his slogans. And then another difference was, of course, his massive use of social media and Twitter in particular, which mm -hmm. was the thing that made him, um, uh, which made his uh, supporters feel him so close to them and so similar to them. Um, and um, yeah, that's that's what I would say is uh, are the main differences with regard uh, to Donald Trump and religion, and between Donald Trump and his um, Republican predecessors. So, would you uh, would you say that Trump was unique or part of a global populism uh, mixed with nationalism that uh, seems to just keep growing? Unfortunately, I'm afraid Donald Trump is a perfect product of this 
uh, right-wing populist, nationalist, authoritarian trends that is sweeping through most Western democracies. And uh, we have also here in Italy many figures who think he, um, he constitutes a very good uh, example for their political behavior. And they are also trying to, um, they're also starting to use religion and religious talk the same way he used it. Um, and uh, yes, I think uh, Donald Trump, no, I don't think he is unique. Maybe mm. he was the loudest <laughs> so far. <laughs> Um, and the most um, out there and evident. And of yeah. course, he has been the president of the United States. Uh, and we are used, especially here in the Western Hemisphere, we are used to consider the president of the United States as one of the most important and powerful figures in the world. Um, so, of course, he has much more... Um, resonance and he occupies the news much more than other uh, than our own uh, yeah. Matteo Salvini or Giorgia Meloni. Yeah. Yeah, religion has uh, a uniquely powerful political role in Italy. Uh, yeah. How does familiarity with that inform your writing? Are there warnings that you think Americans should have in mind? Um, well, I think the role and the history of Catholicism here in Italy definitely informed my way of thinking. Um, I have never really been a churchgoer, but of course, growing up in Italy, you are kind of, I mean, most of us uh, are kind of used to seeing religious symbols and uh, churches and Catholic culture um, almost everywhere. Um, I think religion and religion's role in Italy influenced my, um, my way of thinking about this topic, religion and politics in the US, uh, meaning that I constantly think about the fact, about the difference between here and the United States. Here in Italy, surely because of our longer history, Religion is much more an institution, it's um, incorporated, it's almost systemic. And it's such a deeply rooted element of our history that uh, probably that's why it lacks uh, the vitality and the appeal that it instead has in the United States. Um, and I don't think Americans should look at our situation to draw some teachings, whereas I think the opposite is true. Um, because as I said, prominent right-wing figures uh, here in Italy are taking the US and Trump, and Trump sorry, mm. as, uh, and the religious right as um, an example and are increasingly making use of this, uh, of religious symbols and to garner much more consensus. So I think we should be worried that... Mm. Is there a core thesis that you present in this book, and is it more focused on recent history or a process that is still evolving? Um, well, in my book, I want to make uh, two things. 
mainly two things clear. One is that, as I said earlier, uh, Donald Trump is not a total novelty, and we have to look at the recent past if four or five decades can still be considered recent past um, to understand where he came from, why he used religious talk the way he used it, and uh, why he had such an impressive success. That's why I also focus on the history of the religious right and on what brought these white conservative Christian voters to develop these feelings of resentment, displacement, um, and anger that then fuel their white identity politics. And the second thing I tried to uh, convey is that it's crucial that we listen to the words of those who supported him. Um, now, of course, I'm, I stand on the shoulders of giants in this field, both as far as history is concerned and with regard to quantitative analysis, uh, the data, the numbers, and all the very detailed pictures that uh, many scholars provide us of the American electorate. But what I really wanted to convey was uh, the importance of letting these people talk about themselves, about their history, their beliefs, both religious and, poli and politic and political. And um, these talks revealed the pervasiveness of this idea of being attacked as Christians, of being labeled as bigots, racists, haters, um, feeling out of place within a country and a culture and a society that changed so much. And uh, they are feeling silenced and disrespected. And of course, I'm not condoning these feelings and I don't think they are uh, justifiable, but they are there and they are valid for the people who have them. And we have to listen to the words, to their words, to really um, understand why Trump's figure uh, and his discourse resonated so strongly with these people. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know um, many Americans truly believe the Trump era is over and uh, they talk about normalcy has uh, returned. A, a visit to countless political, social and religious gathering places would quickly prove them wrong. So what will it take for them to wake up? And what should they have learned from these events? What should the world have learned? Uh, well, what will it take for them to wake up? I would think that January 6th was uh, a pretty strong wake-up call, uh, seeing those horrifying images and all that violence, but uh, maybe it wasn't enough. Um, I think what we all can learn from this, from the past six, seven years, is to be more active, um, socially and politically speaking. Uh, I think we have to participate even by simply voting, and we cannot discard the uh, dangerousness of uh, certain political actors. Um, of course, I'm talking about our countries, uh, the countries where we are uh, lucky enough to be able to still go to the polls. Um, we have to learn to talk to people, um, even to those whose idea we might find unbearable or we might despise, especially to these people we have to learn to talk to. Um, and uh, what as I said, what I'm observing here in Italy, apart from the, um, the success of these right-wing populist authoritarian figures, um, is the growth of, this, of these so-called political influencers 
quote unquote, uh, who are people who didn't have anything to do with politics until a few years ago. Uh, and then they decided that they weren't liking anymore what the government was doing, especially uh, during the pandemic. And so they took to Facebook and started lamenting and began gaining impressive amounts of followers. And the problem with, with these people who um, quite often actually look at um, figures like Trump as examples of what they would like to do, what they would like to be in, the, in their, with their political behavior. The problem with these people is that they more often than not convey a, uh, some pretty awful reactionary, um, authoritative and uh, racist messages. Um, and so I wouldn't want to end this conversation uh, with a pessimistic note, but I really do not think that Trump uh, will be the last such figure that we will witness neither in the US nor here in Europe. And um, the pandemic destroyed our certainties and um, thousands of people are fleeing their countries and there is a lot of fear, wanting of protectionism, wanting to reaffirm one's own culture, identity, national boundaries. And so, yeah, we have to uh, remain vigilant and engage. Chiara Migliori earned her PhD in 2020 from the Graduate School of North American Studies at the John F. Kennedy Institute of the Free University in Berlin, Germany. Her book is titled Religious Rhetoric in U.S. Right-Wing Politics, Donald Trump, Intergroup Threat and Nationalism. Chiara, thank you so much for being with us from Italy. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you. Thank great. you. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, you all take care of each other. I'm Welton Gaddy, that state of belief. The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. See, he was, he was.